The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors. And here today, we I am doing another toolkit show. That is a one-on-one show between myself and you, the audience, um, discussing a topic of law and giving you an opportunity to call in, text in or message in with any questions or comments that you may have. It's effectively a seminar, uh, a short podcast, um, a, sh- a short Facebook live stream, or however you want to look at it, um, setting out to you um, in detail um, the uh, makeup of a specific area that we are discussing today in terms of technicalities and your rights. Um, Today we're discussing legal proceedings, how to bring legal proceedings, how to end legal proceedings and how to avoid legal proceedings. Now I'm sure um, you can gather from that it's quite a broad topic and so I won't be able to go into it in specific um, uh, detail for uh, um, in its entirety because of the limited time that we have. But what I will be doing is glossing over the main headline points um, and looking at it from a holistic view of both criminal and civil proceedings generally. And in civil proceedings, the thing is that civil law... And often you hear the word commercial law is a very broad category and it involves um, so many different sub-areas of law. So what is civil law? And effectively, civil law is anything that's not criminal law. Um, so on that note, family law falls into civil law, um, property, business law. Business law itself has different aspects to it. You know, you have employment law, you have personal injury law, you have um, civil re- disputes between neighbours, you have debt recovery, and the list goes on and on. So anything which is not in the criminal arena, um, cr- which involves criminal liability, um, that all falls into the civil arena and the civil law. So those are the two main uh, prongs there of um, legal processes. And so what we're discussing today is how our legal proceedings started and how our legal proceedings ended and how can we avoid them. So let's take it quite slowly. So, And in order to do that, I will uh, go through criminal law for a little bit, then I'll switch to civil law for a little bit, and then back and forth like that as we go through the topic uh, of today. Now, this is a live show you can call in text in messaging on 01582481822 that is the call in number you can message in on 0779481822 that's 0779481822 you can also whatsapp on the same number and of course we are live on facebook which means you can message on Facebook as well. Um, and that can be found using the social media tag of Inspire FM Luton. Um, and of course, you can go to the Inspire FM uh, website. And I believe that's www.inspirefm.org. And on that website, you can listen live and also watch live because, um, as I said, the uh, studio is being live streamed on camera and you can watch that either on Facebook Live or via the website of Inspire FM itself. So feel free to call in. Uh, this is your show. Own it. Uh, direct it. Uh, deal with it as you please. Uh, this, uh, the purpose of these live shows is to allow interaction with our audiences so people can call in with any questions or comments they may have in real time. So let's start from the beginning. How are cases started in this country? Cases started in this country from, you could, I think a a good broad uh, description of it would be the act of laying the information. So laying the information, that is the act which starts legal proceedings, I'd say, in this country. And what is the laying of information? In criminal proceedings, the laying of information effectively means the setting out to the accused, or the person you're bringing a case against, 
the fact that you are bringing a case against them, what arena you're bringing it against them in, namely criminal, um, under what legislation you are bringing a case against them, uh, and why you're bringing a case against them. So an example would be in criminal law, if someone was accused of theft of a motor vehicle, for example, the information can be laid to them in two different ways. One, at the police station itself, following an interview or not, they can be charged formally. And when they are charged, they are given a document which sets out a charge sheet. That charge sheet is the laying of information there for legal proceedings. Because what it sets out is what charges are being brought, i.e. the accusations against that person. Um, in this case, you know, a theft of a motor vehicle under the Theft Act. What date they say that this breach of this legislation happened, that is a theft of the motor vehicle. What motor vehicle, what time if applicable. Um, and how that, uh, and, all of, and just bringing all of that back to the Theft Act and tying it all back in. Um, so that is how that is done in terms of the basic laying of information. Then they would supplement that um, with some summary information on that. And then they would give notice of the legal proceedings in terms of giving a, a court date and requiring a person to attend there uh, on bail either with or without conditions. Now, that document there satisfies two requirements. A, it satisfies the initial requirement of laying information. And then it also satisfies the second requirement in terms of legal proceedings, of giving notice of the commencement of those legal proceedings. And there's a unique power in criminal law which allows the police to do that. Um, the other way in criminal proceedings that information can be laid is by way of a formal summons. So the court issues the information, a summons by post to the uh, accused party, telling them of what the accusations are in brief, under what law, under what date and time they are said to have done whatever is alleged, uh, such as theft of a motor vehicle, and then informing them uh, of the court date and time when it will be heard and requiring them to attend. And the thing about a court summons is that if you're summoned, it's an order by the court for you to attend court. And if you do not attend, uh, and you are without good reason for not attending, um, then potentially um, you commit a uh, criminal offence there. Um, uh, and that criminal offence, if it's not linked to bail, would be a contempt of court offence for failing to appear when summons um, and that would be the process in that situation which is different to if you're charged and bailed from, from police station because if that happens um, and you fail to appear then that is a, a criminal offence. Bail is quite interesting actually from the police station because if you breach a bail condition that is not a an offence, but it can affect whether or not you continue to get bail. Um, because of course, in criminal proceedings, when you are on bail, um, you can be remanded on bail or remanded into custody. So the court has a choice of allowing you to be on bail whilst the criminal proceedings are uh, taking place. Or you can spend that time in prison whilst you await your criminal trial. And if you have bail conditions and you fail to comply, that could trigger the court to decide that you would not be allowed to remain on bail and that bail conditions would not be seen as satisfactory in avoiding uh, risk posed by you from staying on bail. And that risk could be to yourself or others and others could be but the prosecution witnesses or the general public in the form of commissioning of further offences um, or even the victim themselves and so on that situation um, bail can be revoked 
and a person can be remanded. So that's generally how a criminal case starts. Either a person is summoned to court or they are charged by the police and bailed to attend court. But that is how the police do it and how the courts do it. What a lot of people don't know is that in criminal law, it's not just the police who have exclusive power to um, have people summoned to court. Um, that power is actually a general power in legislation. Legislation does not actually say that only certain entities have the power to summon people to court. Well, of course, it's the court that does the summons, but it's the party that applies to the court for the issuing of that summons. So there's no legislation, no law that specifies that only the police or only certain entities have the power to do that. In actual fact, we see on a daily basis many different uh, non-police entities summoning people to court for criminal matters. Examples of that would be the local authority, the local council, for cases of some what we might see often, such as benefits fraud, trading standards, we often see in regulatory matters or um, licensing matters sometimes, um, and copyright trademark breaches etc um, we also see trading standards prosecute people such as rogue traders rogue builders etc um, we also see HMRC prosecute people for tax fraud uh, and all sorts of tax fraud such as VAT ranging from VAT fraud to income tax fraud uh, and on that note in English law you can also be summoned to court by a private individual or a private entity. And so we've seen in the past even insurance companies in false cash for crash claims where the Crown Prosecution Service or, or the police have not decided to prosecute that they've actually brought their own private prosecutions where they have laid information to a magistrate's court and applied for a summons to be issued and the court has complied sent that summons out and then the court proceedings have started in the criminal arena where the prosecution is taking place um, by effectively a private entity against a member of the public and that private entity is not the police it's not a government agency it's not HMRC or Crown Prosecution Service or a local authority it is a private entity now similarly um, we have a private individual could do the same. So if you had an issue with somebody and you reported them to the police and the police decided not to bring any action against that person, in theory, you as an individual could lay the information, as I say, to the magistrate's court and apply to the magistrate's court for a summons to be issued upon that person. So let's have an example. Um, you are out shopping, someone attacks you, you get into a fight, you report the matter to the police. The police decide to take no action against that person, you're not very happy with that because as far as you're concerned, you're the victim of an offence. And so you lay an information um, to the magistrate's court for a summons to be issued and for that person to be uh, brought to court and to commence legal proceedings against them yourself under the Offences Against the Person Act of some sort of an assault. Now, what happens if that person does not attend court? What happens then is a court can issue a warrant for the arrest, either backed for bail or not backed for bail. Backed or not backed for bail means whether or not upon the warrant, arrest warrant being executed, the person can either be bailed to then come to the police station to to the magistrate's court, or remanded in custody straight away at the police station to then appear at court at the next available opportunity, and that could include, therefore, depending on what time they're arrested, of spending a night in the cell and coming to court the next day. Um. So, what that means then is that was a private individual does not have the power to arrest somebody for a criminal offence 
only the police do unless it's a citizen's arrest and that has its own special powers and special situation but generally speaking the power arrest uh, for suspected offenses or past offenses etc lies with the police so if the police um was the police alone have that power to arrest a private individual has the power to initiate criminal legal proceedings and if someone fails to respond to a summons that can trigger an arrest warrant being issued by a court of law and that could then result in that person being arrested so indirectly through this third party medium a private individual has effectively had someone arrested and brought to court it's quite interesting and in the past i remember i played with this idea i mean as you're aware in the past and even now i have done a good few pro bono uh, cases against the police for injustices that people state they have suffered and often when you submit a complaint to the police the IOPC are, and even the professional standards department are supposed to look at whether or not the complaint that's been made against the police officer includes a criminal offence being committed by the police officer and many times we see across the country um, people reporting that a police officers assaulted them but the police themselves or crime prosecution service themselves have not taken any action against them and something that we've played with uh, quite a lot as an idea is what if we set up a community action fund whether it's local or national specifically for actions against the police and where we are sure of very much convinced that there's a high or a good prospect of success of a criminal case against a um, police officer and the CPS and or the police have decided or the IOPC have decided that there is no criminal liability that a private individual with the assistance of this fund is then able to initiate a summons uh, for that police officer to attend court to respond to allegations of criminal behaviour including for example assault and I remember discussing this and saying can you imagine if the police officer failed to attend which is unlikely if a police officer summons to court the more than likely will attend but can you imagine if they didn't and then their own police force would have to go out and arrest them and bring them to the, to the courts and effectively the private individual has just got a police officer arrested and brought to court to answer for criminal charges and that is something that has um, sparked a lot of interest around the country and it's something that I think we should have a look at because there are and I'm not saying that all police officers are bad there are many good police officers out there but there are a lot of complaints made and uh, uh, there's a lot of people agree people out there that feel that justice has not been done when they've made complaints against the police and so if there was another mechanism to assist people because unfortunately there is no legal aid for um, uh, items like this or even if there is it is very restricted and hard to access and so access to justice in this country at the moment is very very difficult and if we had a way of assisting people even from some sort of community fund to get um, justice uh, such as in cases of action against the police I think that that is something that we that needs to be looked at um, but what happens then what if the Crown Prosecution uh, Service don't agree that you should have brought this case to the courts? The legislation has a unique power for the Crown Prosecution Service where they can actually take over a case at any time. So whilst you have the power to bring your own criminal case and get anybody summoned or arrested and brought to court, once the proceedings started, the CPS, that is the acronym for the Crown Prosecution Service, have the power to review any case and decide whether or not to take it over if they do take it over they have two options and none of these options have a right to appeal one option is to they can then run the case themselves which has happened quite often in the past and the other option is for them to drop the case so if you bring a weak case uh, as a private prosecution and the current prosecution service can see that it's a weak case, take it over and drop it. 
and there's no um, power to appeal it. However, what happens if it's a good case and the prosecution take it over and drop it and you disagree with that decision and you've got no right to appeal and you think, you know what, this is really unfair. I really do feel this is a case of much importance that should proceed and the Crown Prosecution Service should not be allowed to do this. What can you do in that situation? Well, you can do the same thing that people do in other arenas, such as in immigration, against the Home Office, where there is no power to appeal a certain visas. And what people do, the other remedy that's available in law for a situation like that, where there's no appeal mechanism, and it's a public body that you are complaining about in respect of their powers or decision, such as the CPS in this case, or, in the, or the Home Office in visa cases. The other power that you have is the power of judicial review. So if the Crown Prosecution Service took over your case and dropped it and you genuinely were of the opinion that this was a case that should not have been dropped and the Crown Prosecution Service were wrong in doing so and or acting outside of their powers, etc., you would bring a, court, a case of judicial review in the high courts. Um, but you would have to do that within 12 weeks. There's a 12-week time limit for bringing a high court uh, judicial review action. So you have to be very, very mindful of that. It's very common and very easy for people to... Um, get um, waylaid um, by communications and correspondence and pondering over things. Before you know it, the 12 weeks have gone by and you've lost the opportunity and power to bring a case of judicial review. So you have to be very, very mindful of your time limits. Um, and of course, judicial review is a civil um, remedy. So whilst the proceedings we're discussing are criminal, uh, the power of judicial review is a civil remedy. When the civil uh, high, high court um, and where you would be effectively challenging the decision by the Crown Prosecution Service in that situation of dropping the case. So you can do that as well. Um, but aside from that, um, there is no power or mechanism of appeal and the danger with just review is because it's at the high court, once you get into that arena, you also enter the arena of costs. So if you bring a judicial review, which you should not have, and you lose it, um, you can be hit with a significant amount of legal costs and court costs um, being awarded against you. So you have to be very, very careful about that. And that's another reason why you have to be careful before you bring uh, or take such action. Um, and of course, that's one of the... Um, things about the criminal arena which is quite different to civil because in the criminal arena either um, there are no costs involved or if costs are awarded often on a very different scale to that in the civil arena which can be astronomical to say the least. So that's how it works in the criminal arena, the bringing of proceeding, the bringing of information. How does it work in the civil arena? Now, civil arena is quite similar in terms of the laying of information. So what happens is, in the civil arena, a claimant, uh, the person who's bringing a claim, has to fill out a claim form. And what claim form it is depends on what arena it is. So the county court and high courts have their own claim form. The employment tribunals have their own claim form. Uh, and I'm sure the immigration and other sectors have their own claim forms. But the relevant claim form needs to be completed and submitted to the court. The court then sifts through it um, and sends that claim form out to the defendant, the person against whom the case is being made. And the defendant has a specified period to respond. And that is generally how it works. There's other mechanisms in civil courts and high court where they have to file an acknowledgement of claim but ultimately it still comes down to them responding and re filing a defence within a certain period and the defence could either be defending the accusations or accepting them and that's how the legal proceedings start in civil cases the um, filing of um, documents with the court which is similar to the um, starting of information in the criminal arena because even there you are filing documents if you're summoning someone you're filing documents with the court setting out what the case is what the accusations are what law is said to have been breached and when and asking the court to issue a summons the difference is though um, that when the civil arena sends documents out it's not a summons to attend court it's just an invitation to respond and if a person 
does not respond at all or out of time they can have a decision made against them in their absence so liability would go against them um, and that's the difference between a criminal arena and the civil because the criminal arena if you don't respond or attend you could be committing a separate further criminal offense whereas in the civil arena that's not the case unless of course a civil court judge has issued a summons which they do have the power to do as well and you fail to comply with that summons and then you could be arrested uh, for contempt of court for failing to respond um, or comply with a court order so you can have that power of summons and contempt etc arising in the civil arena too but that's all we've done on certain applications during proceedings and not at the outset at the start of proceedings so that brings us into the first part of the show uh, in the second part of the show i'll be discussing in more detail um, civil law and civil proceedings um, because in actual fact civil proceedings don't start with the information going to the courts they actually start um, a little bit before that and so we're going to discuss um, what actually is the start Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Oski Lawyer Show. I'm your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors. And today we're discussing how to start, end and avoid legal proceedings. If it's a live show, please you can call in um, on 01582 481822. That's 01582 481822. You can also message or WhatsApp on 0779 That's 0779 live toolkit show today as i said discussing the topic of legal proceedings how to start and and avoid in the first part of the show we discussed the how to start criminal proceedings and different ways that happens and different powers that and uh, come into that and then we touched on civil and we're going to go into more detail on the civil proceedings aspect now so civil proceedings um similar to criminal um you send information to the court of what the allegations are, what a legislation uh, been, has been breached, when, how, etc. And then that is sent on to the other party, the defendants. And the defendant or defendants uh, respond with other admit, admitting the accusation against them, which rarely ever happens. Um, or uh, unless it's a money claim, you have it sometimes, or maybe a counterclaim coming back. But also, um, you have... Um, uh, the um, defendant then having to file a response uh, within a certain time limit. But the difference is between um, criminal and civil is the procedure rules. In criminal law, you have what's known as the criminal procedure rules, and for civil, you have the civil procedure rules. Now, the difference in the procedure rules, um, as far as starting a case is concerned, is in civil proceedings, you have what's known as the pre-action protocol. And this did not used to apply in employment cases, but it's, it does in an indirect sort of way now. You have a form of pre-action protocol uh, in the employment tribunals too. So if I just take you through the civil, normal civil um, uh, pre-action protocol procedure, and then... Um, we can touch on how that's reflected in employment law. So, in civil cases, and this applies to employment cases as well, but generally in all civil cases, to bring a claim, you have to bring it within a time limit, first of all. That's the most important thing to know. Because if you're out of time when you're bringing your claim, then you're unable to bring the claim. You're barred. You're time barred from bringing that claim. So, when you're bringing a claim or a complaint, let's use the word complaint. When you have a complaint against somebody, you need to straight away ascertain what type of complaint that is, how many different boxes it falls into. 
because a complaint could fall into one complaint could fall into more than one box of com uh, of action um, and each box it falls into would have its own dynamics in terms of law of what needs to be proven and its own dynamics of remedy in terms of what can happen as an outcome if the court agrees with you in terms of compensation or findings and also it, each um, uh, method or each complaint uh, claim um, would have its own time limit so for example again action against the police are a very good example because in action against the police cases you might have somebody who's been unlawfully arrested so let's have a look at this somebody is arrested when they shouldn't have been and put in a police cell when they shouldn't have been as a direct consequence because the only reason they're in the cell is because they were under arrest so if the arrest is unlawful then potentially the detention is unlawful what claims could that person have that person could have a straightforward negligence claim against the police a negligence claim uh, for breach of duty of care has a time limit of um, six years you could have a personal injury claim arising from the way the arrest happened maybe they were injured that would have a time limit of three years they could have a human rights claim uh, because of the detention and or the manner of arrest etc human rights claim has a time limit of one year they could have a complaint of discrimination because they could say that the arrest or detention and or detention was motivated by their race or religion or some other protected characteristic then that has a time limit of six months so as you can see that one act of an unlawful arrest and detention or well, two acts but one's triggered by the other that one series of acts um, has um, a number of different complaints that fall into a number of different boxes and each of them with their own remedies in terms of compensation and legal findings and each of them with their own time limits so you have to be very very careful when you bring a complaint that you're within the time limits similarly in employment law um, the time limit is um, three months minus one day so you have to be very very mindful that if someone discriminates against you or you're dismissed unfairly it doesn't matter if you submit a grievance and the grievance is procedure is still outstanding it doesn't matter if you submit an appeal against the dismissal and the appeal process is still outstanding you have to um, commence your legal proceedings within three months minus one day of that act so what that means then is if you were dismissed for example on the 10th of january february march april is three months minus one day 9th of april would be your time limit time limit for legal proceedings now how are legal proceedings commenced in civil law legal proceedings have to uh, follow the pre-action protocol what that means is that you are required to send a letter before action to the other party before you start filing a claim form with the court now the claim form has to be filed within the time limit so six months of discrimination um, one year for human rights two years for uh, protection from harassment act 1997 claims three years for personal injury claims six years for uh, a tort a breach of duty of care case that's the time limits now on that note the pre-action protocol uh, has to be done before that okay so if you submit a letter before action within that time limit but submit the claim form after then potentially you have time sometimes people due to outstanding investigations have to submit their letter um, very much at the 11th hour of the time limit finishing in that situation you're advised to issue your claim form as well and then once it's issued um, you actually have four months to serve it so that could buy you some time to then do your pre-action protocol as well so you don't serve your claim form until um, the pre-action protocol has been exhausted but even in that situation you have to be mindful that you have to serve your claim form within four months otherwise that issued form 
um, becomes um, and defunct. So from a time limit point of view, let's say a discrimination case, your six months time limit is coming up. You haven't done a pre-action protocol letter. So what you do is you issue your claim form within the six month period. So your time limit is preserved. You under you issue your letter before action, setting out to the other side that you're going to sue them unless an agreement can be reached. And you set out your complaints and what, what you want as an outcome. And then um, you watch the clock and within the four month period you submit your claim. Now, if you miss that four month window, then you have to reissue your claim form. You can reissue your claim form, but if you reissue it and you're out of time, of the time limit, then you, you can't bring the claim. If you reissue the claim form, but there's still time remaining, then you can redo it again. So an example would be, let's say there's a, a 12 months human rights claim. Six months in, you issue your claim form, but you don't serve it within the four months. So that takes you to month um, 10. You've still got two months left before your human rights claim runs out. Because of that, you can then reissue your claim form. And then again, you have four months to submit it. But then, if you don't submit it in those four months, you won't be able to reissue a further claim form for that same case because the 12 months for serving that uh, issue, uh, sorry, uh, has already passed. Um, so it's quite a technical sort of um, uh, piece of information there, but it's very important to understand. And of course, in situations like that, you always advise to speak to a lawyer so that you understand fully what potential claims you have. So you don't, early on, of course, so you don't miss any time limits for important claims that you might wish to submit. Now, employment laws is rather different. In employment law, there never used to be a pre-action protocol, but the government realised that there's obviously value in people speaking to each other before they bring a claim. And a form of pre-action process would be extremely helpful in diffusing cases and reducing the number of cases that come to court. Because the less cases that go to court, the less of a burden there is on the taxpayer in terms of public money spent on court proceedings and court time, etc. So, with that in mind, the courts, sorry, the parliament, government, have introduced in employment law a compulsory um, ACAS early conciliation process. And the way that works is this, unless you have an ACAS early conciliation certificate number, you cannot submit a claim to the employment tribunals. The ACAS early conciliation process is designed in a way to encourage conciliation, encourage negotiation between parties. And to do this, the government has uh, instilled mechanisms within the process which pause the submission clock so that when you go to ACAS, you're not worried about your time limit running out for putting a claim in. In principle, I think it's an amazing idea and I think in civil law generally it's worth having something like that because in, in normal civil law, you a person submitting a claim form, sorry, a pre-action letter, does not pause the time limit clock and people are often stressed out and then have to protect their claims by issuing claim forms and not serving them or staying the case. It's quite a complicated process. In employment law, as soon as you go to ACAS, your clock pauses straight away. So imagine you've got three months minus one day, you got dismissed on the 10th of January, 9th of April is your time limit for submitting a claim. On the 8th of April, you contact ACAS, the clock pauses. Now you don't have to worry about submitting your claim the next day because the time limit is now paused. You spend four weeks or six weeks, depending on how long it takes, with ACAS and the employer trying to reach a resolution. If you reach it as a resolution, ACAS can assist in um, cementing that, crystallizing that, and it becomes legally binding when a cop free agreement uh, is a settlement agreement is done via ACAS. If it doesn't come to fruition and the matter is still contested and unresolved, you then have the power to bring a claim uh, to the employment tribunals. That power then means that when you get a, the ACAS will then give you a certificate saying that you engaged in the early conciliation process but the parties could not come to an agreement and a certificate as a certificate number. 
that certificate number has to be entered onto your claim form which is normally done online these days from the .gov website and only when you enter that number does it allow you in the online portal to go to the next page and submit your claim form that number that certificate number that when you get it for the moment you get it under the employment rights act and other related legislation under the equality act etc you get a minimum of an extra four weeks to submit your claim so you will never be short on time so even if at the 11th hour or you've got one day left to bring a claim for example and you contact ACAS when the certificate number arrives you've then got another four weeks minimum to um, submit your claim and the reason why we say four weeks minimum is because the clock has paused when you approached ACAS so if for example you had um, two weeks left to bring a claim and you contacted ACAS when you get your certificate number you then get your four weeks minimum um, and if you engaged ACAS within one month of the time limit then you get in addition the time that was paused so you can potentially have four weeks plus the two weeks however there's been a significant uh, debate on this in the past even though it's been um, clarified at the employment appeal tribunal now but the fact is that due to the debates in the past um, we always advise our people our clients that you should submit your claim form within four weeks of when you get your certificate number just to be on the safe side because because then you've got the peace of mind of not worrying about um, what is my time limit once you get beyond the four weeks and taking a risk of submitting something out of time always play it safe bells and braces check double check triple check when you do anything and if you're not sure um, just play it safe and for that reason we would always advise you in employment law to submit your claim uh, within the first uh, four weeks of the ACAS early conciliation certificate being given to you. Now, that, as you can see, is quite different to um, cr criminal proceedings because there's no requirement to in write to someone first. Yes, people do get interviewed at a police station often before they are charged or summoned to court, but that is not a legal requirement. That is more of a strategic move by the investigating authority. And the reason why it's a strategic move for their benefit is this. When they interview somebody, um, A, it gives them opportunity to clear matters up. So if they've got it wrong and somebody gives them a clear story setting at the interview stage, how they've got it wrong. It saves everybody a lot of time and effort of bringing a case to court, which doesn't need to be at court. But equally... If someone does not say something in the interview or says something different later on at court, which is said in the interview, the prosecuting authority, whether it's the police, HMRC, training standards, whoever it is, can then use that interview's evidence to say that this person's a liar. That if they were telling the truth, they would have said the story at the first stage, at the um, police station stage. And that can be either because there were no comment, in that case, that what they're asking the court to do is draw what's called uh, as an adverse inference against that silence that they had in the police station to say, well, why did that person go silent? If it was a true story, a true defence, why did they not just say it straight with the police station? And if they do that, the jury has the power to decide whether or not they are telling the truth or whether that should count against them. Of course, if a person gives one story at the police station interview, another story later on, that damages their credibility. The prosecution would argue that that person is lying. Either they're lying to us now or they lied to us then. Either way, they are dishonest, they are lying. How can we trust anything they say? And therefore, they have no credibility in what they say. And that, of course, can affect whether a person is guilty, found guilty uh, or, or not guilty. And so... <laughs> That's the difference between criminal and civil, the start of proceedings, because in criminal, um, there is no pre-action protocol, but you can look at the interview process as a sort of pre-action protocol, but it's not a legal requirement. There are plenty of people out there who are summoned to court without any interviews taking place, sometimes because there's no time, the police haven't had an opportunity to interview them for logistical reasons, or sometimes they just can't be bothered, uh, because the case is such they feel they don't need an interview. 
Um, whereas in the civil arena, it's almost compulsory because if you don't um, bring um, or follow the pre-action protocol, what can happen then is in a civil proce uh, procedure, it can count against you in civil proceedings and you can be sanctioned for it. And in employment tribunals, you physically are unable to bring a claim unless you've engaged with ACAS, which is uh, employment tribunals or employment laws version of uh, pre-action protocol. Um, and of course, that's all there to uh, encourage cases to not come to court and maybe parties find resolution um, other than via court proceedings. So that's how you start um, legal proceedings. How can you avoid legal proceedings? Well, in criminal cases, you can avoid legal proceedings by not committing an offence. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. The other way it would be is if you gave a good interview, explaining yourself and the police realise or the prosecution authority realises there's no real mileage here of bringing a case against you. Um, the other way of avoiding legal proceedings in criminal cases is if it's a minor offence and you admit your wrongdoing and apologise for it, there's a possibility of what's known as a caution. Now, caution is a criminal record, but it is not um, a conviction. So it's a record of a warning given to you, a reprimand, that you um, have done something criminally wrong and you, sh you should never do it again. If you do anything again in the future in legal proceedings, they can take into account that you've already done something like this before and you were warned about it and you've still done it again. And it can affect your character in future legal proceedings. With a caution, often with employers, not all employers, but a lot of employers, you may not even, you may not even have to declare it because it's not a conviction. Similarly, it may may not affect uh, your travel abroad. Um, so that's another way of avoiding a conviction uh, or criminal proceedings. Um, you can also sometimes avoid criminal proceedings, maybe not entirely, but in part, where when you get to court, you realise, so let's say there's four or five allegations against you, you realise one or two of them have substance, but the other three do not, and you speak to the prosecution and say, look, if I plead guilty to A and B, will you drop C and D? And they say yes, and then you come to an agreement on that basis, and you plead guilty to some of it, but not all of it, or a lower level, and then you're sentenced according to that. So that's another way in criminal proceedings that you can uh, get rid of, maybe not the whole of the case, but some of it. Moving on to civil, how would you get away there? Well, again, the pre-action protocol is all part of it. If you engage in ACAS, in employment tribunals, or engage in pre-action protocol, often you'll find that with parties actually talk to each other, you can come to an agreement. Sometimes it may be the case that you haven't done anything wrong, the other party is completely uh, wrong in what they're saying, but it doesn't make sense to go and fight a case for um, what commercially can be dealt with um, otherwise. I mean, let's say somebody's asking for wages owed a few hundred pounds. Um, sometimes it might be better off having a settlement agreement and just paying them those couple of hundred pounds rather than go to court and have, spend a day in court and all those months leading up to it where you're preparing a case and worrying about it. I mean, how would you measure the cost of that on you and your business? Um, you know, something to, something to think about. And for similarly, if you're bringing a claim, um, and there's no certainty in any claim, you can have the strongest claim in the world and lose you have the weakest claim and win you know the trial process is unpredictable do you really want to take that risk and so you have to be very careful when you bring claims and if you're i don't know bring a claim for a thousand pound and your employer or the other party says look okay let's reach a middle ground and set that 500 you might not have got what you wanted but you're, you're getting less but that less that you're getting is a victory in principle because the other party is still paying you and further to that um, you're avoiding the uh, uh, time and costs associated with litigation uh, which has its own nuisance value so again there is merit in parties talking to each other and coming to agreements and middle ground and not always sticking to the guns out of principle which is not wrong as well but it's not always commercially a, a sound decision and of course in situations like this you is always uh, uh, advisable to get legal advice because you don't want to settle a case where you shouldn't or 
settler case at a higher amount than you should which is beneficial to you you know these are all things to consider in engaging in litigation and sometimes or i would say always it's worth picking the brains of an expert to make sure that decision making is the right decision the number of times people have come to us about claims and they've come with one claim and we've looked at the case we realized actually there's potentially about six or seven different claims here and similarly um, people have come to us with claims and we've realized that actually there is no claim here or no defense um, and so it, it helps a lot to have a clear uh, vision from the beginning of where you actually stand and what you can actually gain to achieve from fighting a case either by way of bringing it or defending it and so in the civil arena you can avoid evade a lot of action and cases simply by doing two things i say either or or both and that includes talking to the other party actually engaging with them to see if you come to an agreement to resolve the matter and or getting some legal advice whilst that's happening to make sure that you uh, are on the right stance that you're arguing the right points and do not have a misconstrued or misconceived um, idea of your case which actually um, has no basis and that goes both for bringing a claim and defending for example you might be under a mistaken assumption that you've got a brilliant defense to the accusations against you but in actual fact in law you don't and you fight a case all the way and you lose when you actually should have settled in the first place and similarly you're bringing a case which you think is brilliant but in actual fact in law it has no basis so again in a case like that should have settled early on either for nothing or for a very nominal amount just as a victory in principle now unfortunately we've come to the end uh, of the show um time always flies i think we've covered most of it um in, in general terms uh, if you have any uh, queries and you wish to, uh, for further clarification feel free to contact myself uh, directly um or indirectly via the studio you can contact us at liberty law solicitors or contact the studio and uh, ask for a message to be passed on to myself or our teams uh please tune in in the future and if you have any ideas for future shows feel free to contact the studio or myself directly hope you all have an amazing evening and assalamu alaikum to everybody out there Allah Hafiz. thank you for listening to our podcast we stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.